Jonah 1, chapter 1 says this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you uh, would do what we are incapable of doing. That your spirit would illuminate these words, Father. Give us the grace to know you and know you better as we study your word, Father. I ask, Lord, that your spirit would fill us and that your spirit would fill our listening, fill our ears so that we may know your will, that we may know your character, that we may know your nature. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. The passage we just read displays powerful imagery. And it's not too hard for one's imagination to play out the scenario in their mind's eye. We can read this almost as if it's a movie that we're watching or a TV show that we're enjoying. As silly as it sounds, as I was preparing for the sermon this week, I couldn't actually stop from thinking and humming a popular TV show theme song as I was preparing this. 
And so as we explore the passage, go ahead and just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip that started from a tropic board aboard a tiny ship. The, the, the maid was a mighty sailor man, the skipper brave and sure. Five passengers set sail that day on a three-hour tour. A three-hour tour. <laughs> the weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was tossed. If not for the courage of the fearless crew, the minnow would be lost. And I'm just going to stop right there. You've got it stuck in your head, too. You're welcome. In all seriousness, um, I, I would actually like to walk through this passage today, not verse by verse, which is our typical pattern, but rather theme by theme, now, almost as if we're watching a movie and picking it up from different perspectives as we walk through the story, different perspectives, different themes that revolve around these different characters and their different contexts. And so uh, I'd like us to, to, to look at the story through the eyes of the three different characters, essentially, in this order, through the eyes of Jonah, through the eyes of the sailors, or what our text calls mariners, and then through the eyes of the main character of Jonah, God himself, in that order. Last week, we are introduced to Jonah, right? We read about how God called him to arise, to get up and call out against the Ninevites. But Jonah, not willing to be an agent of God's message, decided to run away in hopes that he could escape the presence of God, or more specifically, escape the voice of God. He was deeply running away from God. And this week, we actually see just how deep Jonah was. As we read last week and continue to read this week, there is a downward spiral of sorts that Jonah is descending to. Right In the first five verses alone, what do we see? We read that Jonah went down to Joppa. He went down to the port. He went down into the inner part of the ship. And then he lays down and falls down into a deep sleep. It's a physical description of what Jonah is doing, but it really represents where he is spiritually. Down, 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 Jonah goes. This emphasizes what we spoke about last week, right? He not only tried to run to the ends of the earth to get away from God's presence, but we get this picture here that Jonah is just diving spiritually deep to get away, almost as if he's curling up in a tight little ball in the darkest and deepest of places, trying to avoid his reality. We see how deep Jonah has gone. So deep, in fact, that when this crazy storm hits that is literally ripping the the ship apart, Jonah still sleeps. The captain goes down and sees Jonah sleeping, and he says the words, what do you mean, sleeper? Basically, he's, he's saying, how on earth can you sleep at a time like this? How much of a deep sleep can you be in that the storm isn't even waking you up? 
Now, we all know people, right, that could sleep through like a tornado, right? We know those type of people. We've met one this morning. Uh, Believe it or not, um, the last youth group trip that we took, we found out that Megan, the one that we just brought up, is quite the deep sleeper, right? Uh, Early on in the week, we were talking as a group about sleep, and Megan confessed to being an extremely deep sleeper, that she would sleep through a tornado if it had gone through, and that was a mistake that she admitted to that. Um, later on in the week, we are as a group hanging out in like the lobby of the area that we are in, and Megan falls asleep uh, in the chair. And we decide that we need to do something, uh, obviously like a, any good youth group would do. And two students proceed to pick up the chair that she's sleeping him in, and they take her to an elevator and put her in the elevator all the while she still is staying asleep. Uh, word got around pretty quick to the other youth groups that this had happened because kids on other floors were literally calling for the elevator just to see this sleeping girl in a chair in the elevator. And the wonderful thing about modern technology is we have documentation. So if you don't believe me, come and find me afterwards. I have proof. I assure you that uh, Megan wasn't running from God. She just hung out with high schoolers all day. Uh, But the picture we get from Jonah, though, is that he is in such a deep sleep that he is oblivious to the raging sea. Jonah's in so deep that he's absolutely numb to the voice of God. The ship is literally sinking, and he's asleep and oblivious. Sometimes we don't want anything to do with God, and we run in such a way that we just fall down into a deep sleep spiritually in hopes that we too can become numb to God. In those moments, we need a wake-up call. For Jonah, the wake-up call came in the form of the captain, right? In verse 6, and boy, does it pack a punch. Once again, the captain tells him to wake up. How on earth can you sleep through something like this? Get up. And and then what does he instruct him to do in verse 6? He tells him, arise and call out to your God. This may sound familiar because these are the exact words that God uses in verse 2 to summon Jonah. He tells him to arise and call out against Nineveh. These are the very words that God used to commission Jonah, and they're the very words that Jonah was running from. There is certainly an ironic twist to begin with that you have these pagan sailors calling on Jonah, who's the prophet, the messenger of God, to, to pray, right? Uh, but, but, but these very words to arise and call on God would mock Jonah. Think about this. Down, down, down Jonah goes. And here Jonah is trying to run from the presence of God, to run from his voice. And the captain comes in and gives him the exact command. This theme carries on later when when the sailors, they cast lots to try and figure out, to determine that uh, uh, who, who's at fault. And they discover that this is Jonah's fault. 
And they begin grilling him with questions as if to narrow down what has happened. Right? They want to know specifically what is going on with Jonah that this has happened to him. Right? And almost as if God is speaking to Jonah through these sailors, they ask Jonah, what is your occupation? Where do you come from? Jonah is trying to run away from the presence and the voice of God. And here are the sailors, without even realizing it, reminding him of such call. Could you imagine the conversation? The the, the sailors are asking, Jonah, what's your occupation? What, What is your job again? What exactly is it that you do? Well, I'm a prophet. I'm supposed to be a messenger from God. This question confronts him with the painful reality of his disobedience and betrayal of his calling. Jonah was running from anything that would remind him of his mission, running from people that would remind him of God's voice, that would remind him of God's call in his life. And here are some pagan sailors who don't even know God reminding Jonah of his call. God's providence, just as God wanted to use Jonah to call out against the Ninevites, there's a twist in the story. Here is God using the unbelieving sailors to call out against Jonah. And at this point, Jonah knows he's done. He's finished. It's time to face the music. He realizes that his flight is futile, and it's time to give up and surrender. See, in Jonah's mind, he has come to a place of realization that God is all-powerful, and all-knowing, and all-present, and he cannot outrun his will. And so in Jonah's eyes, he views this as a punishment, and he tells the sailors to throw him overboard. For Jonah, he thinks this is it. As we read and talk about Jonah, I can't help but have some empathy for these poor sailors that were unwillingly and unknowingly dragged into this mess. And there's a great contrast between, uh, in this chapter between Jonah and the sailors and particularly their response. Right? One response from the get-go, from the beginning, is that, uh, and how they respond to this giant storm while Jonah is sleeping, these guys are scared out of their mind. They're throwing stuff overboard. They see the ship breaking apart. They see this freak act of nature, and they're fearful. Now, we have to understand how serious of a storm this was. Because these sailors, these mariners, they are professionals. They have probably been in storms in their life. They probably know when to sail and when not to sail. And so we see a uniqueness in that they are probably surprised by such a storm. There's a modern-day illustration here that I've picked up from another pastor. If you are unfamiliar with flying in an airplane, uh, you tend, whenever you hit any kind of turbulence or uneasiness, we have this natural uh, knack to look at the flight attendants, right? Because they're the professionals, right? They've been through this before. 
And so what we're trying to do is look to them and say, if they're okay, then I'm okay. As long as the professionals are all right and they're not freaking out about this, then we must, we must just be okay. I can trust that the, the flight is going just fine. I can rest easy in my ignorance. Just last month, I was flying home from Colorado Springs, and we had some fairly significant turbulence on our descent, right? As we're coming in for the landing, it feels as though, and once again, I am not a professional, but it feels as though the pilot is struggling to align with the runway. I'm, I'm feeling a lot of this, and I'm looking at the flight attendants wondering, like, is this, is this normal? Is this Okay. And we're coming in for the landing, and then I hear some kind of mechanism, the noise of a mechanism, what I think is the wheels coming down uh, out of the plane. I hear something, so everything is going on. We're coming in for the landing, and I kid you not, we cannot be more than 10 feet off the ground when all of a sudden the pilot jerks the plane back up and we take off again, (laughs) right? At this point, I'm really freaking out. We're circling the airport, and what felt like eternity, the pilot finally gets over the intercom, and he says, sorry about that, folks. We had some heavy turbulence coming in the landing, and there was also a little bit of traffic on the runway. (laughs) He kind of tailed off at the end. Now, I don't mind a little bit of traffic on my morning commute. I do not want a little bit of traffic on the runway when my plane is landing. Landing is my least favorite part of the flight because you've got like 90,000 pounds of steel plummeting towards the earth at over 150 miles an hour. I absolutely hate it, and now I have to do it again. This is my, my, the worst landing experience I've ever experienced, and now I've got to go through it again. When we landed and when we were safe on the ground... We're waiting to get off the plane, and I turn around, and there's an older gentleman there, and he looks at me, and almost in a whisper, so other people couldn't hear, he says to me, I was a pilot for decades, and that was not okay. (laughs) I said, that was scary. And it was in that moment when I saw the professional scared that I knew how serious this was. In our story this morning, we know that this storm is unusually severe because we're told in verse 5 that the sailors, the professionals, are scared and they are crying out to their gods. In that time... Uh, the, the pagans, which these sailors would be, they believed in three different kinds of gods. They believed in personal gods that they would worship for individual concerns. There were family gods that they worshipped by all the members of their family or their clan. And then there were national gods that uh, they worshipped as guardians of an entire nation. And so these sailors are probably uh, coming from different regions, realizing that their own efforts of throwing stuff overboard weren't working so well, so they attempt to cry out to their gods for help. Right? And they're trying to cover as many gods as they possibly can, because one of them is obviously angry. And this is why the captain goes to Jonah and says, Jonah, get up and cry out to your god, uh, because maybe he's the one that's angry. He just wanted to cover all of his bases and make sure that they were all represented and called out to. 
And then they take it upon themselves to, to try and find out who is the source of calamity. Where is this coming from? And they decide to cast lots. This was an ancient practice, mostly to just establish order or determine a solution. And the lots fall to Jonah. They come to realize that he knows the answer to their question of what's going on. And so they begin asking him more questions to try and get a clear picture of what's happened. They ask him, who who are you? Where do you come from? What's your occupation? And then look at Jonah's reply. He says, I am a Hebrew and I fear or worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Can you imagine how the sailors would react to this? They just say, wait, wait, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that you are running away from a God who created the sea and you are running from him on a boat? Jonah, what are you thinking? This doesn't quite make sense. Typically, when we try and find answers to our questions, uh, we attempt to do that to put us at ease, to give us more comfort. But for the sailors, we're told that this answer only made them more afraid. In verse 10, they were exceedingly afraid. And they get really mad at Jonah. They say, what is this that you have done? It's the equivalent of saying, are you crazy? Are you crazy? What are you doing bringing us into your mess like this? We're all just going to die from our very own association with you. They realize how severe the situation really is. Because now they're not just tangling with uh, a freak act of nature. They are tangling with a very, very powerful God. And so Jonah tells them, hey, throw me overboard. And at first they refuse because they're scared of being responsible for his death. And once again, they try to take matters into their own hands by rowing back to shore. When they realize that they can't make it back, though, they oblige to Jonah's request and throw him overboard. And then the storm stops its raging. The winds and the waves cease, and something very interesting happens. In verse 16, after the storm has ceased, we read that the sailors were exceedingly afraid of the Lord, right? There's a progression of sorts here for the sailors. In verse five, we read that they were just afraid of the storm. In verse 10, we learn the, 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 the more of the predicament that they're in, that being associated in Jonah, we're, we're left that they weren't just, we read that they weren't just afraid, but rather exceedingly afraid. This time, not just of the storm, but of the circumstances surrounding the storm. And then finally in verse 16, the storm is gone. The circumstances have changed. You think that their great fear would also cease along with the storm, but we are told that they have a great fear, an exceeding fear, but the object of their fear has changed. They no longer are exceedingly afraid of the storm. They are exceedingly afraid of God. God replaced the storm. God replaced the circumstance. They fear in verse 5. 
they exceedingly fear in verse 10, and now they exceedingly fear the Lord in verse 16. And we're told that this fear provoked and prompted a response from them. They go on to make sacrifices to God, and they made vows. You'll notice that they're no longer calling on their own gods, but to the one true God, Yahweh. They're no longer trusting in their own gods to save them. They have put their trust in the one true God, Yahweh, for their salvation. See, their sacrifice was simply a means of worshiping God. It was a public expression of dependence and worship. And their vows demonstrate that their response had longevity. They're not only going to worship God in that moment, but they would continue to worship him moving forward. When I made my wedding vows, it was a public expression of my intent to continue to be lovingly faithful to my wife. No matter what the storms that hit, I will still be faithful. Vows are not a promise that I will love her and be faithful to her today. My own actions speak to that. You can see how I'm acting that prove that. No, vows are a promise that I will, will love and be faithful to her tomorrow. For these sailors in making the vows, well, they may not understand God completely. They are looking at him and saying, we will worship him not just today, but tomorrow as well. We will worship this God. The, ex- the sailors experienced a dramatic transformation of sorts, and they responded in a fairly dramatic way. And so what was it that prompted such a transformation? Well, the answer to that is when we walk through this story from the perspective of our final character, the main character in the story, God. The events that these sailors just witnessed were so awesome that it had a profound and lasting impact on them. What happened to them was probably the most shocking experience of their entire life, and they would never forget what God did that day. Last week, we talked about God's omnipresence, right? That he is always present, that he rules over all things at all times. Uh, If last week we saw God's omnipresence come through the text, this week we see God's omnipotence come through the text, meaning he is all powerful. And as the sailors are progressively exposed to the omnipotence of God, they move closer to the truth of who God really is. We see God's nature and God's character is expressed through his omnipotence. If we go back to the beginning of the story, we actually find somewhat of an unsettling truth of how God used such power. Just as Jonah dramatically responded to God by fleeing the opposite direction of where he was called to go, God dramatically responds to Jonah. How? We see it in verse 4. We see that God is the one responsible for the storm. God is the one who hurls the great wind on the sea. 
last week we spoke about how God typically communicates through the ordinary, right? Through the context of an ordinary believing community. But we see here that he is certainly not limited to that. It is very clear that God is speaking to Jonah through the storm. It is very clear that this storm is no coincidence, but rather a part of God's divine plan. There is no doubt. The author leaves no doubt in our mind that this storm was caused by God. Can we be comfortable with the fact that sometimes God sends the storm? Why would he send the storm? Why on earth would he do such a thing? Is it because he's angry with Jonah and he seeks to punish him for running away? Possibly. That's what Jonah thinks anyway. But as the story of Jonah unfolds into chapter 2, we actually find that God has mercy on Jonah and saves him through the means of a great fish. And in order to save him through the means of a great fish, he needs to get him in the water through the means of a great storm. Why does God send the storm? Because that's what it's going to take to reel Jonah back in. That is what it's going to take to get Jonah's attention. These are the great lengths that God goes to to bring Jonah back into the fold. In God's persistent grace, he pursues Jonah, sends a giant storm to draw him back. One commentator says that these actions show God's tenacious commitment to reconciliation with humanity. Sometimes God needs to break you to get your attention. Sometimes God will send the storm, will bring you to a place of brokenness in order to draw your attention back to him. And when he has our attention, when we truly see his omnipotence, we come to find our place of surrender to God, just like the sailors. When we experience the power and the might of God, that is when we truly worship him and respond to him. Right? And an encounter with God will provoke you to surrender. And so as God shows off his power in this passage, it is all displayed in an attempt to providentially pursue Jonah. And so this leaves me with the question as I read this and I look at this and as I identify with Jonah so many times, in light of God's power, who am I? Who am I to run in light of God's power? Who do I think I am in light of God's omnipotence? To this point, Jonah has made this entire thing about him, about his desires, about his will, about how he sees justice in the world. And God, as he actively engages with creation, says, Jonah, this is not about you. This is about me and my power and my character and my nature and my will. And it is my will to do whatever it takes to pursue you. God will go to such great lengths and display his power so that you may know that he is God and that you will turn to him in worship. This story reminds me of another story in the Bible. 
There's a group of men on a ship when a giant storm hits. And sure enough, there's Jesus in the inner parts of the ship sleeping. And they call on Jesus in a very similar fashion saying, how on earth can you sleep in a time like this when the ship is sinking? And when Jesus wakes up, he actually isn't like Jonah because he doesn't succumb to the waves and the storm and the fear. He actually instead rebukes the storm and the winds and the waves. And he says, quiet, be still. And in the same way, the waves immediately died down and it was completely calm. And just as the sailors praised God and feared God for the, for, for the storm calming, these men, these disciples on the boat with Jesus looked to him and said, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? They were so awestruck by the authority and the power of Jesus that they asked, who is this? Wow, what power. What a powerful name that is, Jesus Christ. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? It's the same man who had power over death. Same man that died and conquered death on our behalf. The same man that has the power to resurrect us and usher us into the kingdom. And as God pursues Jonah with the storm in order to bring him back into his will, God also pursues you. God pursues you through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that you may have life. And we can either sit here and turn to Jesus and marvel at his great power or we could go on sleeping, oblivious to the very voice of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this short time that we had here with your word. Father, would we um, consider the storms in our life as potentially uh, something that you're doing to draw us to you? I pray that you would protect us through those storms, but if there would be a lesson to be had, let us be very clear and understanding of, of, um, of that, Lord. Would your spirit move in us and through us to be drawn to you, Lord? When we hear your voice, would you allow us to respond? Would we respond, Father? And lift up the rest of our time here this morning as a body of believers, Father, as we continue to worship you through our fellowship, that you um, would, would, would be, your presence would be felt. I lift up our offering to you, Father, that you would bless it and that we could uh, use these donations and these gifts and these tithes and these offerings to worship you, Lord, but to make your power known throughout Erie and the ends of the earth, Lord. We thank you for your goodness to us. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.